Our Father, we come to you this morning for help. I need help. I need you to come and help me to be clear. I need you to come and help me to articulate the Word of God. Give me strength. I want to pray for these people. Because all of us need help to sit at the foot of the Word of God this morning and bow our knee to it and ask you would teach us. Ask that you would make us all the more like Christ. Thank you for the privilege of study. Thank you for the opportunity to open your truth. We pray with the psalmist who says, show us wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. God has made you for a purpose. You're not here as the result of a moment, as the result of chance, as the result of an accident. You are on planet Earth by divine design. And your God-given responsibility then is to fulfill that purpose. And that purpose is nowhere better articulated than in Isaiah 43, 7, which reads like this. Everyone who is called by my name, I have created for my glory. I formed them and I made them. Isaiah 43, 7. You exist and I exist to glorify God. If you do anything less than glorify God with your existence, you've fallen short and you've missed your purpose. On the other hand, if you will make it your life aim to give God glory, your life will be satisfied and fulfilled beyond anything you understand. Your soul will find liberty. Sin is described in Romans 3.23 as falling short of what? The glory of God. When we choose to sin, we choose to pursue a purpose that is not the purpose for which we were made. We were made to pursue glorifying God. And so you're faced with a choice, and I'm faced with a choice. The choice is this. Be satisfied in glorifying God, or be satisfied in sin. That's your choice. Your choice sits in front of you. The world and all that it contains is contaminated for, with sin, and for this reason must be destroyed. It doesn't glorify God. And yet, this is still your purpose. Whether or not you submit to this purpose, this is why you're here. And this is why I am here. And the world is going to compete with you. The world is going to try to distract you. The world is going to try to draw you away from the purpose for which you were created. And you can't let it. Christ died to save you. He died because you and I didn't glorify God. He died for our non-glorifying of God. And when He redeemed us, He redeemed us and renewed in us the ability to once again arrive at our purpose, which is to give Him glory. That's why we're here. All that until the day where he takes us to another world, a place called heaven. If you're to be fulfilled and satisfied and you're to reach the purpose for which God made you, you cannot look to this place because it's passing away, because it has no ability to satisfy. You must look to the world to come. C.S. Lewis said it like this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He's right. You and I are made for somewhere else. Not this place. Somewhere else. And if this morning you are in Christ, then this place is not your home. You're a stranger here. You don't fit in. You're a citizen of a kingdom to come. You're just passing through. And I want to show you how to live for the other world while you're still here. Open your Bibles to Hebrews this morning and meet me in chapter 11. Because I want to talk to you about how to do this. How you can live for another world. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to start reading in verse 24 and go to verse 27. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Our text this morning is found in the context of a letter, a letter that was written to a group of Jewish Christians who, new to Christ, had departed from their Judaism. But departing from their Judaism cost them dearly. They faced some of the most intense persecution that could ever be described. And the letter is written primarily to encourage those people to say, hold on, press on, have faith, persevere. There are other people in the church that were on the fence. And they were tottering. They were contemplating going back. And if they went back to Judaism, it would be a lot easier because it wouldn't be so difficult. It wouldn't cost them their lives. And so they had a choice. And the writer says, if you walk away, the only thing that remains for you is a terrifying expectation of judgment. 
We come to chapter 11, we find that there is a list of the what I call the Faith Hall of Fame. There are men and women as, that serves as examples of true and living faith. And his point throughout the chapter is this, that if you have true faith, your faith will work. Your faith will persevere. Your faith will endure and hold you to the end because it will help you see another world that you're holding on for and it will enable you to get there. This is the faith that the Hebrews were to have. This is the faith that we're to have. And I want to show you how to do it. I want to show you how to do it. The man of faith that we're looking to this morning is named Moses. Most of you know Moses. If you don't know him from the account of Exodus 2 and following, you know him from the DreamWorks uh, show that came out uh, a couple of years ago. He stands in a long line of men who are heroes. They're my heroes. These are men who faced the litany of, of attacks from the world. And I want to show you what this writer says about them. Look down the page with me in verse 32. He gets to the end and says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, who by faith, look at what they did by faith. By faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and the others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This is how men in the past were treated. And the Hebrews were to look to the men who stood as pillars of the faith and follow their example. And the guy that we're coming to this morning is named Moses. And he was confronted with some choices. He was confronted with some choices that he had to make if he was going to follow God. If he was going to submit to God and if he was going to follow God, he had to come to the watershed in four issues. And he had to persevere. And these are the same issues that the Hebrews had to face, and they're the same issues that you have to face. In this text this morning, what I want to do is help you to see the four choices that you must face and make the right decision in if you're going to follow Christ. If you're going to follow Christ, you must decide as Moses decided. How you respond to these tell something about you, if you're living for this world or for the world to come. The first option is this. Will you love the world or the people of God? Will you love the world or the people of God? Look back in Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, the author of Hebrews picks up the story, it says, when he had grown up. And Acts 7 tells us this was about the age of, of 40. And he came to the place at age 40 where he had to make a choice. Literally, the text could read, he came to the point when he had to choose to deny something. He had to choose to let go of something, or as the version I just read says, refuse something. Namely, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, as you know, Moses was brought into the royal courts, uh, the royal courts of King, King Tutmos I, as a baby, and he was adopted into the family. He became the son of Pharaoh's daughter, who is probably who came later to be known as Queen Hatshepsut. Try that. Um, Philo, the historian, suggests that the Pharaoh, the reason that, that he brought Moses in, all in the plan of God, was because there was no heir apparent to the throne. There was no male who could step in and, and be invested with the qualities that he would need to, to rule the world and the greatest dynasty ever. This was a place of honor. This was a place of prestige. Acts 7 says he was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians. His trade and his training, everything about him, his family poured time, they poured money, they poured everything they possibly could into this man because he was going to step up and take control. I mean, where would you send your kid if you were going to make him, if he's going to be the world ruler? Uh, where, where would he go to school? What would you do? What kind of things would you pour into him? He was trained, no doubt, in the fine arts in pantheistic religions, in military strategies, in history, in literature. I mean, fill in the blank. He was tutored by the best of the best. In modern times, we could say it like this, he had several PhDs and all kinds of other letters behind his last name. They invested money, they invested everything that they could to make him the best. He was being groomed to lead the world. This is no small thing. This was huge. 
Acts tells us that he did become that. He did become a man of power and of deeds, it says, of words and deeds. He became everything that they had intended. He was peerless. There was nobody greater than Moses. You didn't compare to Moses. There was nobody better. He had all the leadership qualities. He was a great orator. No doubt he was an influential chief. He was a polished speaker. Very gifted leader, accomplished champion. His rank ensured that he had all the authority to do anything that he wanted on the earth. Can you imagine that? I mean, people grope for this, don't they? People long for this today. One interesting note I found from Josephus is that he records that Moses was also extremely handsome, which I find interesting. It said that um, Moses... When Moses would travel down the Nile with his entourage, people would line the bank of the river to catch a glimpse because his physique was so impressive. I mean, he had it all. Looks, fame, brains, uh, authority, power, title, recognition. I mean, everything that you could ever want. Leadership. All that you could want in this world. He was groomed to be the best. And look at what the text says in verse 24. It says, he refused it. He turned his back on it. Everything that he could have ever wanted was in his grasp. He had it. And he turned his back on it. Instead, look at what he chose. Verse 25. He chose ill treatment with the people of God. You say, wait a minute. This is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. Moses, you have it all. I mean, everything anyone would kill to be in your spot, Moses, in an instant. Moses had everything he could have ever wanted And he turned his back. And what is worse is he chose something else, ill treatment. He chose ill treatment with God's people. That's what the text says. Literally, to have it bad with the people of God. Or to become one with those who suffer. That's what that word really means. He chose to be afflicted with God's people rather than to enjoy all the prestige and all the fame and everything that he was afforded. And he gave it up all. And it's not that just these were people. These weren't any ordinary people. These were despised people. These were loathsome people. These were rejected people. These were people who Pharaoh considered subhuman. Think about it. From royalty to slavery. Forty years before, Pharaoh made a decree that all the sons should, uh, two years and under, be killed. Right? Remember that? Should be killed. And we're going we're to stop these people from growing. We're going to inflict them with hard labor. We're going to torture them. We're going to beat them. They do not exist as human people. They exist for one reason, that is to serve us. That's who he chose to identify with. You say, that's crazy if you're living for this world. The difference was, even though these people had nothing to offer Moses, God God placed it on his heart that he was going to be a leader for this people. God had other plans for this man. This man was groomed to be the best of the best, and God took him and used him for his purposes. These were his people. He was an Israelite. He was one of them. And it says in Acts 7, I'll just read. When he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Here's the picture. He sees a, a, one of his brothers being attacked and, and being uh, uh, maliciously beat upon by an Egyptian. And out of compassion for his brother and out of vengeance for the wrong that was suffering, he killed him. And it said, the people didn't understand. But this is what happened in Moses' mind, the text says. He supposed, this is why he did it. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. In other words, God somehow put it on Moses' heart that he was going to be a deliverer of his people. And he had to come out. He had to come out. He could no longer remain neutral. He came to the watershed and he had to choose who he was going to line up with. He had to decide, am I going to line up with the people of God or am I going to line up with the people in my court? He couldn't be neutral. You might say, well, 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 well couldn't he just maybe um, wait till Tutmos is dead and couldn't he step in? If he is the world ruler, isn't it possible that he could use his power and his authority? Doesn't that seem reasonable? That he, once, once he's got full power, full authority, he can just make the, the Israelites, you know, Exalted. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Unless God calls you out of the world. God called him out of the world. And there was a difference with Moses. Because God calls his people to come out and be separate. And the point is this, is that you can't partner with the world and the people of God. God had to bring Moses to the point where he decided, and you must decide the same thing. You must come to that same place. You have to choose one or the other. 
And the question, and the way that you might discern this is, how do you treat the people of God versus the people in the world? How do you people treat the people in the church versus your boss? Or your coworkers? Or fill in the blank, I don't know. How do you treat your family? How do you treat the people of the world to come? Are you fellow citizens with them, or could they not? You couldn't identify with them for anything. Which do you love more? And the reason I ask this is so many people, uh, fellowship on, on church and Sunday and being with God's people is something that's kind of, the, well, okay, we're not doing anything else. I mean, nothing better's come along. I mean, we're not going to go to Aunt Martha's, okay, so we'll, we'll go to church. If soccer practice and baseball practice and whatever doesn't get in the way. Moses had to choose. And I tell you that because I say this, the church in Pakistan this morning is loving being together. You know why? Because they're being mutilated for their faith. Men and women are dying for their faith, for their commitment to Christ. People are being tortured and killed. You better believe they love being with one another because they need each other. They need the strength of each other. They need to be together because they are just pilgrims passing through to another world. And so many times we get so caught up when we're passing through, we get distracted and we look over to our left and say, I want to go over there for a little while. And God says, no, you pass on. You come out and be separate. And Moses had to make a choice. Sometimes we're fat and sassy in America, sitting over here being stroked by the world, but being involved with other Christians, being involved with citizens of the kingdom is central to the life of a Christian who's headed somewhere else. Moses' choice doesn't make sense if he's living for this world. It makes perfect sense if by faith he's living for the world to come. Now, you say, well, what's, what's the point here? Let me show you that the Hebrews were very, very much faced with this. Go over to chapter 10 for a second. Chapter 10, verse 32. I want you to see how much of a difference this made. Hebrews 10, 32. He says to them, but remember the former times when after having been enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. When you first came to Christ, you suffered, you did well, you did strong partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations. People in the world reproached you, they insulted you, they rejected you, and you endured it. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Now watch this. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully, I'll come back to that word, joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Here's the picture. The, the underground church, the people would find out you're a Christian and they would, they would take your friends off to jail. And you're still undercover. And your friends are in jail. And jails then aren't like jails are today. Jails then you had no food, you had nothing. If somebody was going to, if you were going to survive and live, somebody had to supply your food, somebody had to give you everything that you needed. Because the jail there was, was very, very bad. And here's the picture. I have a choice. Do I blow my cover as a Christian and go and minister to my brother in jail and risk being found out and end up there too? Or do I sit at home become comfortable in the eyes of the world. What are you going to choose? The text says they chose to minister to their brothers. They went, and the text says when they went to go to minister to their brothers in jail, they looked behind them as they traveled, and they saw their houses being torched. They saw their kids' toys going up in smoke. Everything that they poured everything into was gone, is vaporized. And it says they did it with joy. Now, how can you do that? The only way that you can joyfully, he says, accept the plunder and the seizure of your property is if you have, verse 34, a better possession and a lasting one, another world, a world to come. And by faith, you have to look to that world. By faith, faith is the torch that burns the bridges between you and the world. And you must choose. You must choose. And this is what Moses had to face. And this is what you have to face. God might have you in a place right now where you know you have to step up and take a stand for Christ. You know that if you step up, you might get persecuted. I mean, the world that we live in is so benign in terms of persecution that, that, that we get ashamed to stand at the water cooler and say, I'm a Christian, or pray over our food or whatever. I don't know. But God may be calling you to step out and come out of the world, and if so, you need to step out. You need to do the will of God. No matter what the cost, no matter what the price, you have to separate yourself from the world. And if you do this, you're going to be faced with another choice. And that's the second thing I want to show you this morning. And there's a question I want to ask. Will you prefer temporary pleasures or temporary pain? Which will you prefer? Verse 25 of chapter 11. 
I'll pick it up in 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, look what he chose, to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Again, we, we, we read this and we think, okay, um, this guy turned away everything and turned, the option that he turned to was pain. It was painful, ill treatment, pain, hard. But the text says that Moses, for to do anything else, would have been what? Sin. It would have been sin for Moses not to come out. And so he had to weigh his options. He had to think about something. He had to make a decision. For him to stay would have been sin against God. And you say, well, what would have caused him to stay? What would have caused him to remain in Egypt besides the accolades from the world that he received? Verse 25, the passing pleasures of sin. Now think about it for a minute. What pleasures do you think were at his disposal? Endless beautiful women, gourmet banquet food, endless entertainment and amusement, complete recreation, everything that people today retire to live for? He had it all. He had every bit of it. And what's worse is look at what he chose instead from a worldly perspective. He chose celibacy, cold and dark nights, cheap food that he no doubt had to scrounge, poverty, hardship, grouchy and complaining people. That's enough to send you back, isn't it? Life in bondage. Moses chose because by faith he saw something. And I want you to see it this morning. He saw something about the nature of sin, the nature of the pleasures that the world offered. The text says that they were passing pleasures. Literally temporal, transient, fading, fickle. They last only a little while. This is the nature of sin's pleasures. It does last for a little while, does it not? I mean, if sin was not satisfying, nobody would be doing it. But sin does have a deadly hook under the bait. And Moses saw by faith the pleasure in sin was temporary. I don't want a pleasure that's going to last me 100 years. I don't want a pleasure that's going to last me 8,000 millennia. I want a pleasure that's going to last me forever. And the point that he is saying here is that when sin offers me pleasure, there is a counteroffer. And it's revealed in Psalm 16. Turn there. Psalm 16. This is my wife's favorite verse. Psalm 16, 11. I want you to feel the weight of what he says. This is David talking. Psalm 16, 11 says this. You, God, will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. When I stand in your presence, joy is brimming. And at your right hand, there are what? Pleasures for a little while. What's it say? Pleasures forever. There is a passing pleasure in sin, and there is an eternal, unfading pleasure in God. When sin comes to you, it holds out promises, doesn't it? It says, I will satisfy, come and, and be satisfied in me. And God says, there are promises that I hold out that if you glorify me, you will be satisfied. As we read this morning in Psalm 63, your soul will be satisfied. The one you choose is the one you what? You believe or have faith in. Faith is promise. Faith, faith is exercised in the promises. And the one I reject is the one I call a what? A liar. So when I choose to sin, I want up the ante for you, okay? When I choose to sin, my choice is to reject God and, to, and His promises and to turn away and say, Yes, sin, I will believe you over God. Your offer to satisfy me is so much greater than my offer to obey. That's what he's saying. Psalm 73. I want to show you this somewhere else, too. Psalm 73. This is the, a man named Asaph who looked around at the world and he saw all that the world had to offer. And in fact, he began to really hanker after those things. And when he looked at them, he said, Man, the, the righteous are perishing and the wicked are thriving. The wicked are satisfied. Everything that they want is coming to them. They're, it says their eyes bulge with fatness. I mean, they got everything. Where do I get my perspective when that's true? Look at what it says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, 
I desire nothing on earth. Underline on earth. Nothing on earth satisfies me. Only eternal pleasures forever at your right hand is what I live for, God, because I'm not living for this world. If I were living for this world, the things of this world that promise to satisfy, I would indulge in. But if I'm living for the world to come, then I desire nothing here. Look at look at also he says my flesh and heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever behold those who are far from you will perish you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you but as for me the nearness of God or I could say the presence of God is my good I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The things in this world that are offered to you the moment that you walk out the door this morning will never satisfy you. They'll satisfy you for a couple of seconds. And they'll damage your soul. Your soul will shrivel. I don't want, I avoid places where my soul shrivels and dies. I want to go to places where my soul expands in the glory of God. I don't want, I don't want to cheapen my soul. I don't want to pursue, I don't want to fall too short of my pleasures. I want to sue, pursue the greatest pleasure in the greatest pleasure giver. And that's in God. That's what the text says. Now there's one more text I want to show you that's the most definitive on this, and it's Jeremiah 2. Turn there. Jeremiah chapter 2. This is a legal courtroom scenario. God says, I want to pull you into court and I want to contend with you. Jeremiah 2.9. He says, I'm bringing you into court and i got a case against you. And I want you to appear before my bench. And I want you to bring your sons, he says in verse 9. Jeremiah 2. And he says, cross over to the coastlands of Kittim and see. And send to Kedar and observe closely. And see if there's ever been such a thing as this. What he's saying here, go over to Kittim. Go all the way to the east as far as you can. As far as the known world is, go over to Kittim, which is the farest island. And, and what you find there, you'll find, you'll find non-Christians, you'll find pagans who are trading. That's the imagery he says. That when you go there, you're going to find that. He says, and then I want you to go all the way as far west as you can possibly go over to Kittim. And I want you to look and observe very closely what you see. I want you to look among all of those pagans, and I want you to look for one thing. Verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? In other words, if you go, if you go all the way east and all the way west, look as far as you can in the known world, look among all the pagans and see, has anyone ever turned away from their idols? No. Among all their trading, the thing they don't trade is their God. But look at what he says the people of God have done. Verse 11, my people have changed their glory. You could put a capital G there. They have changed their glory for that which does not profit, or literally that which never satisfies. Verse 12, be appalled. He calls the heavens into the, who are the jury at this point, into the court. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. And shudder, be very desolate. Literally let your hair stand up on your neck. Because my people have committed two evils, or literally a two-sided double evil. The first part of the evil is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's the picture. He says that my people have turned away from me. I am like, he says, a fountain of living waters. That's, That's just a metaphor for running water. Uh, we, we take that. If you live in an arid climate uh, and you don't have the, the uh, accoutrements that we have today for that, you, you come to value water very much. And what he says is if you were to find a geyser or a, a brook that's, that's running and flowing, that would be a valuable thing because what is in the brook is life-giving. It is nourishing, it is sustaining, it is fulfilling, and it is satisfying. You can't exist without it. He says, that's me. And the people have turned from that. What have they turned to? He says they've turned to cisterns. Now, a cistern, uh, if you don't know, is a is a, a hole carved out of a rock. And what they would do is they would they would carve this big hole out, and if they got water, they would dump it in there so that they had a supply. And you can imagine how valuable that water was to them, couldn't you? If if they would cover it up so that animals couldn't come and fall in and you know and contaminate the whole thing or drink it, or people wouldn't know where it is, so they couldn't come and just steal your water supply because it was so valuable. And what they would do is because sometimes the rock, as you can imagine, would crack. And if, and if there's a crack in the rock, you have no water because it slips out and becomes mud, right? What he says here is you have turned away from me, the fountain of everything, all in all. And you've turned aside to not a cracked cistern, a crushed, broken cistern that can hold no water. He says you had everything 
You had me, and you turned, and you jumped into this, this mud pie, and you smeared it on your face, and you said, this is gain. He says, have you ever seen anything as horrifying as that? point is this. They've turned from me to the slums of sin, and they're chewing on mud when they can have a great feast. This Thursday, when you sit down to your table and eat, think about this. Think about something. Let's pretend I came to your house. And let's say that you had a banquet table as long as the stage is. And let's say it was filled with turkey. It's getting close to lunch. It was turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce and those cool little green pickles. You know what I'm talking about? Yams. And you had, um, you had all the stuff that you could ever want. The most nourishing and most satisfying meal of the year. And you invited me over. Which, you know, that offer still, if you want to, stands. Um, <laughs> and you invited me over. And let's say that 10 minutes before you needed ice for the cups. And so I said, I'll go. I'll go get the ice. And I go to the store and I get the ice. And as I'm standing in line, I'm looking down and I'm seeing the Butterfinger. And the Twizzlers. And the Cupcakes. And the Twinkies. And the Twizzlers. And the Diet Coke. And let's say I, I, I get all that. And, and I sit in my car and I start pounding it down and pounding it and pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. And I don't want you to know that because I, you know, I'm just going to come and eat your dinner. So I'm pounding it and pounding it and pounding it in. And I walk in. I sit at your table. You have the biggest spread of the most satisfying food I could ever eat. And what's the problem? I'm not hungry. Why? Because I've been snacking on junk food. A lot of times we live our Christian lives like that, don't we? We snack at the table of the world and we have absolutely no appetite at all for the pleasures that are in God and His glory. We stifle ourselves. Moses saw something about the transient nature of those pleasures that enabled him to choose satisfaction in God. Sins holds out promises and God holds out promises. Which will you choose? Your choice is determined by your faith. Liberty comes from Liberty from sin comes when you prize the promises of God over the promises of sin. Augustine, in the year 386, was converted miraculously to Christ. God just reached down and saved him. And what he expressed in, as he unfolded to God his thankfulness was a, book, a tome of books that we call the Confessions. And there's a quote in the Confessions that I want to read to you that's part of his prayer of God that captures the essence of what Moses caught and that I want you to catch. Listen to this. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. He understood. He understood that there is a greater gain in being satisfied in God than the fruitless joys of sin. And God in His sovereignty showed him that joy and saved him. He understands. He understands. Faith is the key that unshackles you from the prison of sin and enables your soul to be liberated and walk in the glory of God. When you're tempted between temporary pleasures or temporary pain, choose the pain. Because the way of pain and uh, the way to the pleasure in Moses' text, and you go back to 11, is through pain. I want to show you that. Go back to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Because what I want to show you here is that Moses had it all. He had all the pleasures he could have ever hoped for, all the pleasures that people grope for today, and he rejected them, and he chose, rather, ill-treatment. He chose pain, rather than sin. Now, the sin here is the sin of apostasy. What apostasy means is that I see God, and I turn away after having come to a knowledge of the truth. And I walk away and follow no longer. That's apostasy. And there's several threats throughout the book of Hebrews to people who are, are flirting with that. People who are on the edge and tempting to go into the world and apart from, from God and apart from Christ. And there's a nothing but threats left for them. And this is the connection. This is how the pleasures of sin result in apostasy. Watch this. Sin offers you pleasure. You buy into it. You, you engage in it. You indulge in it. And as you do... As Jeremiah said, it is a departing from the fountain of living waters. And as you engage in sin, which deceives you into thinking you'll get pleasure, it calluses your heart. 
all of a sudden your heart becomes hard and you no longer have sensitivity to God. And pretty soon there comes a point where you can never find your way back. That's what he's talking about. And Moses chose to see sin for what it was and the passing pleasures that it offered and pursue Christ. He says, if it's a choice between temporary pain and temporary pleasure, I'll take the pain because the pain is worth the pleasure in the end. That's the only way you can see above the pleasures here is by faith. That's the only way you can see that. And the Hebrews had to face this. Go go to chapter 10. I'll show you this. They had to face the same thing. They were tempted to go on sinning and reject Christ because of the persecution and the pleasure and the comfort and the ease that the world afforded them. Chapter 10, verse 26. He says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no sacrifice. There's no forgiveness for you. What remains, verse 27, is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? You say, what's that mean? Simply, if you rejected Moses in the Old Testament, you were killed. How much more of a punishment do you think will come to those who reject Christ and trample him underfoot? In other words, think he is only worthy to be walked on. That's what you do when you walk away from Christ. Verse 30, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Terrifying words, verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing. You can have the pleasures of sin if you want to, but you'll have the pain for eternity that is unbearable. You have to decide how you're going to choose. And you have to choose now. You're going to live in the comfort and ease of the slums of sin or enjoy the banquet feast in eternity and the pleasures of God. Will you, as Thomas Watson says, have a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath? Choose wisely, church. Choose wisely. Moses made his choice on the basis of the lasting nature of the two. Either worldly pleasure, which is temporary, with eternal pain, or worldly pain, which is really temporary pain, and eternal pleasure. You choose. You can just choose which lasts longer. 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. I love that. Far beyond all comparison. You give me pain, it results in greater glory for me. There. Greater enjoyment of the glory of God. Because we look at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things are not seen are eternal. How do you see things that aren't seen? Faith. Faith. Isn't that the definition in chapter 11, verse 1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the only way that you're going to be able to make this choice is if you choose to have faith and believe that the world to come is worth the pain that you're going through now. When you're faced with temporary pleasure or temporary pain, choose the pain, which lasts only until, Matthew 25 says, you enter into the joy of your master. Just last a little while where there are great rewards and eternal pleasure forever. But you see, Moses lived for another world. He lived for another time in another place. And this helped him. This perspective and this faith helped him as he was confronted then with the third choice that he had to face, that you have to face, and that's this. Will you prize empty riches or eternal rewards? Will you prize empty riches or eternal rewards? Look back at chapter 11, verse 26. It says that Moses considered something, or literally he thought long and took heavy inventory on something. He considered the reproach of the Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, if you're going to live for this world, then you're going to need to fund your lifestyle. If you're going to perpetuate worldliness, then you're going, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And Moses stood before an endless stream of wealth, did he not? I mean, do not the museums and... and All the remains from that day cry out how wealthy that nation was. And to be the guy who owned it and had it all. And instead of taking the riches that was in front of him. I mean, everything that everybody wants. I just want more money. He turned it away. He rejected it. I mean, this just does not make sense, does it? From a worldly perspective. 
I mean, that's why the world calls this foolishness. And God calls it the wisdom of God. All the wealth that he had, all the things that he had, he turned away. He could buy anything he wanted in this world, but it would all perish with him. He had to choose what was going to last for eternity. And I want you to see here in this text that Moses considered something. He valued something, and he decided that the value of eternity was greater than the value here. And the value of suffering for the Christ was of greater value than all the money in the world. Because if he was going to follow God, he was going to suffer. And that was greater gain to him than all the money in the world. He says, I'll take it. I will take it. You say, he must have prized something greater. Look at what the text says. Verse 26. Because he did this, because he was looking to the reward. Literally, he fixed his eyes and his gaze in a dead stare on the reward. That's what that word means. He stared like a painter who's painting. They stare at the object that they're painting for so long to understand all the contours that makes up that that object so that they can represent it exactly. That's the kind of stare that he had by faith into the reward. There was a greater reward than Egypt could ever boast of. There was something greater. There was a greater gain than any gold he ever saw. And it was the place where Jesus said, we're to lay up our treasures. And it was for the sake of this reward that he was willing, as the text says, to suffer for the sake of the Christ. What this literally means is the Messiah. This is what it's saying. uh, Moses knew that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, was coming. And he was coming through this line. And he knew that he was coming through the people of God, Israel. And he wanted to identify with that promise. He wanted to claim salvation for him because the Messiah would be his deliverer. And he says, I want that deliverance, and so I'm going to have to choose now to line up with the Christ and suffer for it, which the Hebrews had to do, rather than to enjoy all the riches that are before me. Jesus said in John 18, My kingdom is not, is not of this world. And Moses in faith looked ahead and saw the Savior and decided to side with him. Suffering on behalf of Christ was more valuable than having all the money in the world, in other words. And not only did Moses suffer reproach, literally insult and disgrace, He had ill treatment. He had all of it in his fingertips and he let it go because he looked to something greater. You say, isn't it selfish? Isn't it wrong to look at God as a rewarder? I mean, I need to have faith and duty. Look at verse 6, chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and the what? Rewarder of those who seek him. If you're going to be saved and you're going to have faith, you have to believe that God is holding out a greater promise for you that you long for, even though you don't see it. And faith in the promises of God to satisfy is the knife that cuts the rope that binds us to the world. He pulled out his knife and he cut loose the cord and he said, I don't ever want to go back. Hebrews needed to hear this. Now think about this for a second. If you're under persecution, all your stuff is under persecution too, right? Look look at chapter 13, verse 5. You can imagine that with the threats on all the stuff that people in this world prize, you can imagine that the temptation to covet or the temptation to hold on to it would be there, wouldn't you? Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Now listen to this promise that we're all familiar with. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What he's saying here is don't worry if your stuff, your SUVs, your cars, your house, everything goes up in a puff of smoke. I'm enough. And the reward that I offer you in eternity is greater. I'm enough. Choose to be eternally rich. We have a little plaque in our house um, with a little little statement on it, a little quote. It says, "Tis only one life, it will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. That's true. And Moses saw that. He looked ahead. And when you're forced to choose between empty riches or eternal rewards, choose eternal rewards. And the loss of material things is not all that you're going to have to lose if you follow Christ. There's a final decision you're going to be confronted with if you're going to follow Him. And that's this. Will you desire the favor of men or the favor of God? Which will you desire?
The favor of men or the favor of God. Go back to 11, verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. The key word that I want to focus you on this morning is fearing. He didn't fear. He left fearlessly. He left doing what God called him to do, namely lead the people of the nation of Israel out into the promised land. He didn't have fear, he had faith. But do you remember that there was a time in Moses' life when he had fear? Remember that? Do you remember that that once he killed the Egyptian and did what was right, all of a sudden, the king's going to find out. And what did he do? He took off from Midian. He bailed. He ran for his life. And he got there and he ran into God. You remember that? Into the burning bush. And God said, hey, I want to send you back into Egypt. And I want you to go up to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go. And he goes, I can't talk, God. Um, uh, He was struck with fear. Panic seized him. He was arrested. He couldn't move. He says, God, please, I can't go. And he says, don't worry. God says, I'll be your strength. I'll be your sufficiency. I'll be your help. And Moses said, you don't get it, God. I'm not going. And God in his grace said, okay, Moses, I'm going to be your strength and I'm going to send you Aaron. um, But you're going to go. And God had to do a work in his life where he sent him back into Pharaoh. And he stood before Pharaoh. And you remember what he said? Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember that? What gives you the courage to stand before the world ruler who can snuff out your life in an instant? Faith. Faith. Go with me for a second to Exodus. Chapter 10. Moses was scared initially, but by the time God had prepared him and brought him back in to stand in front of Pharaoh and call Pharaoh to obey God, he was fearless. Chapter 10 of Exodus, verse 20. You remember a series of times God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He says, no, okay, I'm going to bring plagues. Let my people go. No, okay, I'm going to bring more plagues. And that that repeated about ten times. Um, We get to the ninth time. Right here in verse 20. And it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. In other words, it's so dark, you you can't see anything in front of your face. It's pretty dark. Verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. And the people didn't see each other, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. I mean, they just sat there because they couldn't move because they were just, they couldn't do anything. Even light. It couldn't even flip on a candle because it was so dark. But the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go. Serve the Lord. In other words, get out of here. Just leave. But he put a condition on it that Moses wasn't willing to accept. He says, Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones can go with you. In other words, you can get out of here, you people, but leave all your stuff. Leave all your cattle. Leave, all, leave, it, leave it everything. You say, well, that's, that's not easy. We can leave. We've got our freedom. Let's go. Is that what he says? No. He says, if we do that, we're not going to have anything to worship the Lord with when we get out as an offering. Verse 25, Moses said, you must also let us have the sacrifices and the burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. We're going to worship. We're coming out of the world and we are going to worship and you are not going to tell us what we can take with us. We are taking our tools of our worship with us. He says, verse 26, Therefore our livestock too shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. We're taking every one of them, because we want to sacrifice to our God. Until we arrive there, we ourselves don't know what, with what we will serve the Lord. Verse 27, this is interesting. But Pharaoh would not let him go. It said, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Now look at this, verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, beware. In other words, don't come back here. This is how it's going to be. Don't come back. Do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses' response, okay, no. Moses' response, you are right, I shall never see your face again. That night, God came to Moses, talked about the Passover. Moses takes the people, leads them out by faith. What gives you the courage to stand up to a world ruler like that? What gives you the strength to be able to call the nation's leader to repentance? Faith. Faith. It doesn't make sense if you live for this world. 
But it makes perfect sense if you're living for the world to come, if you value that world. Faith was like the telescope that allowed him to peer over all the circumstances that were there and look into the abode that he was living for and be encouraged and strong to stand up to this man who had the power to snuff his life. He obeyed God rather than men. And he was unflinching. Now what was it that gave him the ability? The text in Hebrews says, He endured as having seen him who is unseen. What this means is, he saw the invisible God. And I could preach on this for a long time. I think of John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, who served 12 years in the Bedford jail in a very similar situation that that, um, the prisoners would have faced in Hebrews' time. He sat there in jail for 12 years and wrote that book, Pilgrim's Progress. And it says that the strength that he had to draw upon that enabled him to make it, he says, in those 12 years, he says, I thank you, jail, for having been in my life, because in that time I learned how to live upon God who is invisible. What does that mean? Live upon God who is invisible. I see God through the eyes of faith, and God who is invisible and stealth ministers to me, helps me, strengthens me. He's invisible, and I see him, because that's what faith is. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 12, 4? I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do to you. But I warn you who you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Do you live for the fear of God or the fear of men? His favor is the only favor that matters. His are the only rewards that we seek. His are the only pleasures that last forever, and His people are the only ones who are going to accompany us for eternity. What are you living for? What are you living for? If you're not in Christ this morning and none of this makes any sense to you, believe. Look to Him right now and believe. Trust Christ. Christ who came and endured the wrath of God meant for your sins, and in exchange offers you forgiveness and the hope of a life after Not a terrifying expectation of judgment. You can have that if you believe Him by faith. Christian, if you are here and you're struggling and you're needing to cut ties with the world, you need to go out here today and you need to make some radical changes. You need to exercise faith. Faith that only God can give. May God hasten the day that you and I long for. Until then, let's walk by faith and not by sight. Let Moses be our example and Christ be our guide. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. This is heavy truth, Father. But it's glorious. We live for an unshakable and unfading, untarnishing kingdom. And stand before you as a God who is so much enough. You're all that we need. All that you've promised for us in Jesus is true, and I just pray that you'll give us the faith that we need to say no to the slum of sin, to say no to the world and its friendship, to say no to the world and its riches, and no to the world and all its threats. Give us the faith we need to endure. Help us, God. We'll trust you for it in our Savior's name. Amen.